0: Amen. Guys, we are finally at the end of John. That deserves an applause. We made it. Thank you for the two people who applauded. Um, And we're not applauding me. We're applauding that we're done with a book because it took us a year. We started this literally like a year ago. Um, Today is our last study in the book of John. Today we're looking at John chapter 21. And guys, this is one of my favorite stories. This is like the perfect ending. It is simple, but it is so, so good. So let's, let's begin with John chapter 21, and let's just start with verse 1. We're going to have a video on the screen so you guys can follow along.
1: After this, Jesus appeared once more to his disciples at Lake Tiberias. This is how it happened. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin... Nathanael, the one from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples of Jesus were all together. Simon Peter said to the others, I'm going fishing. We will come with you, they told him. So they went out in a boat, but all that night they did not catch a thing.
0: Have you ever in your life felt trapped? Like in a situation where you could not get out. You know, recently I trapped a mouse. Or Sometimes on Wednesday nights, you guys leave the door open. You know, you go into the backyard and you leave the door open and you don't close it. And that's okay. It's just that mice overrun our house every single time. So, you know, if you guys want to pitch in and buy me some mouse traps, that'd be really helpful because it's your fault. But anyway, um, I still love you. Um, but uh, I put this mouse trap. it was a glue trap, in the middle of my kitchen floor, and I put a little marshmallow on it, and the next morning, I go into the kitchen, and there's this mouse, like, I hear it struggling, it's like, rrr, rrr, like, caught in the mouse trap. and then I walk in, and I peek my head over the kitchen counter, and the mouse just is, like, like, it stops, and it totally just stares at me, and, like, I look at the mouse, and it looks at me, and I look back at the mouse, and it looks at me, and then the mouse, like, then starts to, like, really try to get away, and I'm, like, oh, this poor guy, now, I'm not gonna, like, touch a mouse. Like, I'm not gonna take my hand and, like, rip it off the glue trap. Plus, if I did that, it would probably rip out its, like, intestines and stuff. So this mouse is dead, you know? It's dying, and I want to make sure you know, it dies a good death. Like I tell Brooklyn, I'm like, there's this poor mouse and he's caught and I've got to kill him, babe. I've got it. Cause that's, that's the only thing to do. If I put him outside, he will literally get eaten by like an eagle or he will starve to death. So I've got to kill this mouse. He's trapped. So she's like, Oh, that's so sad. And normally she hates mice, but now seeing this like little, like, you know, it's so cute. And like, it's got these big old, like Pixar eyes and you know, it's so fluffy. I could die. It's just this cute little mouse. Now it's helpless. So Brooklyn's like, okay, kill it, but do it in a good way. So I, I get a broom, and I start sweeping it towards the door. I'm like, okay, this is good, you know, nice little smooth ride for this mouse, you know. So then I'm like, I'm going to get him over the door hunch, though. So I kind of flick, flick him, and he goes, ah! And he flies out, and he, like, hits his face on the rocks outside, the little pebbles in my driveway. And I'm like, oh, poor mouse. And I'm like, I don't want to kill him, like, right in front of the house. That's nasty. Like, I got to get him farther out in the field. So I get the broom, and I keep sweeping him. And every time I sweep him, he, like, tumbles and flips and, like, dirt and, and rocks are getting stuck to him because of the glue trap. And I'm just the whole time, he's like, why are you doing this to me? And I'm like, I'm sorry. You came in my house. It's the high school kid's fault. I'm sorry, Mouse. So I keep sweeping him. And every time he tumbles and he gets more and more dirt and, and I'm looking at him and he's like literally looking up at me, like, just kill me. Like, this is terrible. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, Miles. I don't know what to do. And then I look over and I see this giant tree stump and I'm like, oh, I got to do it. So I get this giant tree stump, and I hold it over the mouse, and I drop it on the mouse. Just, <laughs> then I lift it off. The mouse is still alive. He's got his, his hands up, and he's like, why? Why would you, like, that's, like, uh, I, like, shed a single tear. Like, it was the worst thing I ever had to do. I picked up that tree stump again, and I dropped it again, and I put my foot on it, and I just pushed it down, and I <laughs> I ripped it back off, and the mouse was dead. And I was just like, "That was one of the worst things I've ever had to do." I feel like a terrible person. I'm not like like James Frizzy. I showed him a dying bird, and he like stepped on it right away. I'm not like that. I don't. I don't have a missing heart like James. Um, No offense, James. He's not here to defend himself. Anyway, have you ever felt trapped? by your failures maybe have you ever felt like that mouse in a position where life and your mistakes just keep sweeping you over and rolling you over and it's like all of your mistakes stick to you and you can't get rid of them and it's like the enemy just keeps dropping tree trunks on you and you're like please just let this be over that's where peter is right now in this story, Peter is trapped by his failures and his discouragements. The direction of this message, you guys, is specifically what the Lord put on my heart. This message, please pay attention. This message is specifically for those of you guys who feel at times like failures, who feel like your sin separates you from God's ability to use you and work in you. And that's where Peter is. Like, let's, let's look at Peter's journey. If you will, imagine it with me. So Peter starts out as a young, uneducated fisherman. Now, if you're in Israel and you're a young, uneducated fisherman, you pretty much are going to stay a young, uneducated fisherman. You don't really have any hope of job advancement. He took over his dad's business. Him and his brothers are working as fishermen, and that's really all they can do. It doesn't pay well, but it feeds the family. They're in a bad position, and you know, the dream of every young Jewish man would be to be selected by a rabbi. These rabbis were these teachers who went around, and they taught people the ways of Yahweh and the the ways of God. They were celebrities in the Jewish culture, And, and basically, if you got picked, you got selected by a rabbi, it was like the dream come true for a young Jewish man. So for Peter, I mean, he probably felt like that was impossible. Well, one day he's out fishing, and Jesus of Nazareth, this young, amazing, like influential rabbi, shows up on the scene and says, hey, I pick you. Peter, drop your nets, because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so Peter, his life, I mean, he's on top. He got selected by Jesus, this teacher, this celebrity, and now he's going around, and Jesus is talking about something even bigger than just teaching the Torah, the Bible at the time. He's talking about God's kingdom mission. He's like, listen, disciples, God's kingdom is here, and and his kingdom has come through me, and we are going to take things over. We are going to make a change. Like, he's saying all these crazy things, and then he backs it up with his, his words. He backs it up with his actions. Jesus is doing miracles. Imagine, you're Peter. You start out in the boat fishing. Life has no advancement, and then you get picked by this Jesus guy, and not only is he going around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's going around healing people. He's healing people who are sick. Blind people can now see. Dead people have been raised. For Peter, I mean, things are amazing. And then, and then, not only is Jesus doing miracles, but Peter is swept up into it and Peter ends up doing miracles. Remember the story of the walking on the water. Jesus comes out on the water and all those 12 disciples are in the boat and Jesus is walking on water and everyone's like, it's a ghost, it's a ghost. But then someone says, oh no, it's the Lord. And Peter's like, that's Jesus, I'm going out there. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not, Jesus is obviously something special about him. Peter, you're just a fisherman. Peter's like, I don't care if Jesus can do it. I know I can do it because I can do all things through him. And he goes out and he walks on the water. It's, it's this amazing thing. Like if you think of what Peter has been through in his life, he's been through this fantastic journey, but then things start to go downhill for Peter. He was at the top of his game as he's walking on water, but then remember he sinks, he loses his faith. And, and Peter went through a lot of misunderstandings in his life, a lot of ways of misunderstanding Jesus. Yes, he was picked by Jesus, but a lot of times he misunderstood Jesus. A lot of times Jesus would say things like, my kingdom is here, and in order for my kingdom to fully come, I'm going to have to die. And Peter's like, what are you talking about, God? All right, what are you talking about, Jesus? You, you don't need to die. And Jesus is like, no, that's the plan. Get behind me, Satan. And, you know, Peter said a lot of stupid things. Have you guys ever said anything stupid? I, I've said a lot of stupid things. You guys know. Those of you guys who know me, you, you know I say stupid things. Um, sometimes I just don't think. I was at Disneyland, and I saw this lady, and she's working. It's like this middle-aged like, woman in her 40s, and she's working at the churro stand. And I'm a friendly guy. I wasn't trying to be mean, but I said something that was really dumb. I was like, ah, working at the Disneyland churro stand. So this is like probably your dream job, right? And this middle-aged lady looks at me, and she's like, no. <laughs> No, it's not. And you can just see the sadness in her eyes. Like she's like, "Are you mocking me?" Like I went to Harvard. <laughs> this is the only job I could get. Like just obviously, I say stupid things, and that reminds me of Peter. Peter was always saying the wrong things. He sinks. Uh, Peter had pride. You know, there was a point where Jesus says, "I'm gonna have to die, and and you guys are gonna forsake me. You're gonna run away from me." He predicts this, and Peter goes, "Not me, Lord. I will never forsake you. I'll never run away from you." But well, what happens? what happens? They go to pray in the garden, and Peter falls asleep during prayer. They're attacked by the soldiers who come to arrest Jesus, and Peter ends up attacking some poor servant. Not even the soldiers. It's like this, the butler, the guy who's like, very good, sir. He goes and just chops off the dude's ear, and then all of the disciples run and hide, including Peter, who said, I will never forsake you, Lord. And then while Peter's hiding, while P- Peter's being a coward, they come up to him. The, the, the temple servants come up and they say, uh, don't you know that Jesus fellow? And, and Peter says, no way. And he starts cursing. He starts swearing. He's like, I don't know that Jesus guy. I don't have anything to do with him. And he denies him three Times Peter was a man who had an incredible journey of faith where he got to the top of the world, but now at this moment, he feels like he's at the bottom. And yes, Jesus has come back, but Peter feels like even though Jesus is starting this new work, yes, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus has resurrected, but Peter feels like God is finished with him. You know, in my shed out in the backyard, I've got tons of items that I haven't quite thrown away yet, but I'm never gonna use. Like they're just sitting in bins and drawers. They're eventually gonna get thrown away. They're, they're broken. There's really no use for them. It's just that I'm kind of holding on to them. That's how Peter feels. He's like, Jesus hasn't said, get out, Peter, but he's not gonna use me. I'm broken. I've messed up too much. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe at one point, your journey of faith, you were on the top of the world. You were serving. Maybe you went on a missions trip. Maybe you were serving in some form of leadership, and now you've blown it, and you've made mistakes, and you've backslidden, and you know you have, and other people know that you have, and you feel worthless. You feel like, you know what? I know God wants to keep me around. Yeah, I know I'm going to heaven, but God can't use me that's where Peter is. Yes, Jesus appeared to the disciples. Remember last chapter, uh, he, he appeared to the disciples. He walks through the wall and he says, look, my brothers, look at the holes in my hands and the holes in my side. But you know what? In that story, we don't really see Jesus and Peter having a moment. He has a moment with Thomas, but Jesus and Peter don't really get a moment in that story. Maybe, have you ever been in a situation where you've been in a fight with friends and then all of a sudden you're in a public situation and your friend is being nice to you, but you guys haven't really had a moment to like talk through the issues, So it feels like maybe they really like secretly hate me and they're just being polite in public and in those kind of situations and when you're fighting with a friend you just want to know everything's okay you want to have that talk and go are we okay that's where Peter's at But Peter believes his time in ministry is over, so he returns to what he did before, which was fishing. He gets back on the boat, and he says, I'm going out because Jesus has no more use for me, so I better go back and catch fish. And I've seen this so many times. Young people serving Jesus, and they fail, and they fall back to the old ways. I'm gonna go back to the old friends because I feel like God won't accept me because of my sin, so I'm gonna go to the people I sin with because at least there they accept me. Now Peter is failing, not only at following Jesus, but he's failing at fishing, and that's got to hurt. He's this fisherman. His whole life is fishing, and he can't be a Jesus follower, so he gets back on the boat and says, well, maybe I'll go back and fish, and no fish are getting in the net. If I were Peter, I would just want to give up on life, and I'm sure as he was fishing and catching nothing, his mind went back to the original story where he met Jesus. The original story, it's so great. Peter is this fisherman, and he's catching nothing. He's having a bad day. Jesus shows up and says, Peter, Throw your, throw your net on the other side of the boat. And at that point, Peter doesn't know Jesus. He just knows he's some random rabbi. And he's like, rabbi, like, uh, you know, you're not a fisher. Your background's carpentry. You're a carpenter. Like, Jesus, go build a bookshelf. Like, don't tell me how to fish. And Jesus is like, no, trust me. So Peter's like, all right, whatever. And he takes the net, throws it on the other side of the boat. And just because he simply obeyed a simple act of obedience, God through Jesus, causes all of these these fish to swim into the net, and the net gets so full of fish, it almost breaks. And I'm sure that Peter, in that moment, while he's on the boat, while he's trying to fish and catching nothing, he's thinking, if only I could have that moment back. If only I could have that moment back. This is where the story gets really good. Guys, look at verse 4.
1: As the sun was rising, Jesus stood at the water's edge. But the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Young men,
0: haven't you caught anything? Not a thing. Throw your net out on the right side of the boat, and you will catch some.
1: So they threw the net out and could not pull it back in, because they had caught so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Peter heard that it was the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken his clothes off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples came to shore in the boat, pulling the net full of fish.
0: I love this. Guys, this story is so beautiful. There's so much symmetry. There's so many callbacks to earlier moments in Jesus and Peter's story. This story is really, the other disciples are in it, yes, but I really think this story is Peter's redemption story. That's just the way that Jesus works. The way that Jesus works here is so beautiful. You know, my wife is one of the best gift givers I have ever seen. Like, Me, when I give a gift, I just go to the store and I'm like, "Eh, what does this person want? Like, Starbucks gift card, I don't know, I'll get him something. My wife, some of you guys have received gifts from my wife. My wife gives, like, these, like, like, perfectly crafted gifts with special items, like things that she knows that people love, like something from a band that they love or or a TV show that they like or or food that she knows that they love. Um, Sometimes my wife will prepare a gift that has a special callback to like an inside joke or story between her and the other person. And that's really what Jesus is doing. What he's doing is Jesus is giving Peter this perfect gift that calls back to earlier moments in their life. Think about it. The first thing is the fishing story. We just Talked about it. This is a repeat. Like it's it's the same thing. It, it's it's the net, and nothing is being caught. Just like the first day that Peter and Jesus ever met, and, and Peter's reliving, and he's like, "If only I could have that moment back." And Jesus is like, "I have prepared something for you. I have prepared a feast of grace and mercy for you, Peter." It, it's it's amazing. He's on the boat, and, and Jesus is on the shore, and it's this mysterious figure, and he's off in the distance, and they don't recognize his voice, and it's like. Hey, have you guys caught anything? And that's that's really annoying. Like, imagine you're a fisherman. You're trying to do your job. You're out on the boat, and some guy on the shore is like, "Hey, got any fish?" And he's like, like clearly you can see that we're struggling. Like, cl- clearly you can see we haven't caught anything. Like, you're just like, come on, man. So they're like, no, we haven't caught anything. And then again. We'll throw your net on the other side of the boat. And I wonder if Peter got it. I wonder if right in that moment, he's like, is that Jesus? But I think Peter's so frustrated. He's so just living in the moment of his despair and feeling like he's separated from the Lord. He doesn't even get it. And guys, a lot of times in your life, when you feel separated from God, God is preparing these moments for you, trying to reconnect with you, but we miss them because we're not listening for them. A lot of times when we're struggling with sin, and the, with sin, the doubt and discouragement and the shame that comes with it, it's like, our ears get stuffed with cotton, and it's like we can't hear what the Lord is trying to say to us. But the Lord just pushes through. He gives him that instruction. Put your net on the other side of the boat. What's he doing? It's, a, it's like a reboot. It's like starting over. That's what Jesus is doing. He's showing Peter, we're going to do this again. Let's go back to square one. We're going to reboot this relationship. Let's go back to the first moment that you and I had this amazing friendship started. And what happens? The second thing, think about it. It's more symmetry. It's more repeats. What happens? The fish come in the net, and it's John who says, it's the Lord. And Peter gets it, and he's like, and and he jumps out of the boat. Now, think about it. What's this a callback to? Peter's repeating history. He doesn't even get it. It's the story of walking on the water. And they see Jesus walking on the water, but everyone goes, it's a ghost. But then one of the disciples, I think John, says, no, it's the Lord. And Peter's like, I'm getting out of the boat. Because he loves the Lord so much that he just jumps out and he walks on water. In this story, he's the first guy out of the boat. As soon as he knows it's Jesus, he jumps out, dives in. Peter is repeating history without even knowing it. And it's just, it's so beautiful. Even though Peter is defeated, we can see in his response to seeing Jesus that he has this fierce passion for God. And this has always been what God looks for. Not our failures, but our heart and passion for him. He sees past our failures and he looks at the heart. How do you feel about him? It's this beautiful picture, the boat and the shore and the gap between the two men. Think about it. The ocean represents the separation between the two of them. And through Jesus, we can go past the gap and separation between God and us. He created this way for us like Peter to jump past the the chasm and the gap no restrictions i love that our sin can't separate us dave hunt says the more clearly we see the infinite gap the chasm between god's glory and our sinful falling short thereof the greater will be our appreciation of his grace and love in bridging the gulf to redeem us And the story gets even better in verse 9 turn there with me
1: they were not very far from land about a hundred yards away when they stepped ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and some bread.
0: Bring some of the fish you've just caught.
1: Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net ashore full of big fish, 153 in all. Even though there were so many, still the net did not tear. Come and eat none of the disciples dared ask him who are you because they knew it was the lord so jesus went over took the bread and gave it to them he did the same with the fish this then was the third time jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from death
0: this is so beautiful i just i I love this story so much he says come and have breakfast Come and eat with me. He's preparing this feast of grace and mercy, this grace of what they don't deserve, this grace of sparing them what they do deserve. It's this beautiful thing. Who is he saying it to? Who's Like, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Who is he saying it to? Disciples who have abandoned him, guys who have left him out in the garden to be arrested. Do they deserve this at all? Do they deserve this meal? No. They, they abandoned him and they doubted him and they left him. Imagine that you're at school and you're walking out uh, during lunch on, on the courtyard and, and some really terrible students come and they, they push you down on the ground. And you've got your friends with you and they push you on the ground and they start throwing things at you and they start calling you names and they start calling you terrible things and you turn to your friends. You know, you've got six of your friends with you, like enough to handle these three bullies. And, and you're just like, what the heck? Like, why are these people picking on me? This makes no sense. And you turn back to your friends and they've gone. They've left you. They completely ran away when they could have helped. Now, if your friends did that to you the next morning, would you say, Hey guys, meet meet me at my house in the morning. I made you breakfast. I made you pancakes. Whoa. I don't know what just happened, but a light went out. That's cool. Would you do that? Would you say I made you breakfast to your friends who did that to you? No, absolutely not. But that's what Jesus did. Listen, any normal person would have gathered the disciples there at the beach to chew them out. Have you ever done that with your friends? Like got them together so you could let them have it and let them know they were being really bad friends. That's what Jesus should have done in his human nature. That's what we look at and say, that's what I would have done. Jesus should have gathered his disciples there to let them know how they were the worst and how Jesus was gonna go get new disciples. But that's not how Jesus works. Instead, he greets them with breakfast. It's a feast of mercy and grace. That is the heart of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon and I said Thomas Merton, but it's Charles Spurgeon, says, I believe that as often as I transgress, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. Guys, as much as you and I are ready to sin, and we're always ready, our our flesh is always ready to sin, and that's why you have to fight against it. I don't know anyone who tells me that they never have temptation, and they're never ready to sin. Every single one of us struggles with different things, but there's always moments where we're ready to give into our flesh. Jesus says, I am more ready to forgive you. As much as you are ready to give in, I am more ready to love you and show you my forgiveness. And it's so important to understand, guys, what's God's motivation for forgiving? When I was young, I used to think God's motivation for forgiveness had to do something with, like, because it was his job. You know, like someone's job description, like, God, what's his job? To forgive. Like, that's what I thought. I thought it's like he had to. Like, oh, I guess I got to forgive all these sinners because I'm God and I'm full of love and grace and mercy and justice. No, no. God... If, if, if God didn't want to forgive us, he would have just blown us up a long time ago. He would have melted earth and made something better. Listen, he wants to. He wants to forgive you. As you struggle and sin, God wants not only to forgive you, but to help you overcome the sin. Please don't think that God's mercy and grace is there so that you can continue sinning, so that you can keep giving into temptation. God looks at the sin inside of you like a doctor looks at cancer and says, I will not rest until I cut that out of you so that you can be restored to a working, healthy relationship. Listen. Sin is like a wall that cuts us off from God. Jesus wants to tear that down. Alan Redpath says this, it's Satan's delight to tell me that once he's got me, he will keep me. But at that moment, I can go back to God and I know that if I confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive me. I love that. Now, isn't that interesting? The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. There's two ways you can read this, and I think one way is the better way. You can read God has a strict policy, and unless you come to him and confess your sins, he's not going to forgive you. You have to come and confess. It's got to be this horrible thing where you get down on your face and just you just tell God what a horrible person you are because God wants to stand there and say, I told you so. Yeah, you better come and confess your sins to me. Like, I told you you were terrible. I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. See, the reason it's if, the reason it's not just, yeah, like God just forgives all your sins no matter what. The reason is if you confess your sins and go before God, he forgives you is simply because God will not force you into a relationship with him. God is not gonna force you to operate within the bounds of a healthy relationship. So if you're not gonna go to him, if you're not gonna follow him, if you're not gonna confess your sins and say, Jesus, I can't do this without you, I need you, I need to follow you, he won't make you. Like he's not going to drag you into it because he believes in your free will to choose your own path, but his path leads to life and the other path leads to destruction. He loves you and he will fight for you to make that right choice, but he won't make you. Forgiveness tears down the wall between relationship. And so many of us in our life right now, we have walls in a relationship, things that have been done, trust that's been broken. We have walls that have been built. Jesus loves tearing down relational walls. He lives for it. It It's like it is his thing. You need to have this view of God, guys, that he just is constantly Fighting to tear down those walls. So many, so many of us are just content to live with those walls. Maybe you have people in your life who've hurt you, who've left you, uh, who've wronged you, and you have this wall built up. Or maybe you were once friends or family, and now you look at them and you're like, "Well, they can just forget them. Like, who cares? Like, they they have their life. I have mine. I don't care about them anymore." Listen, Jesus loves tearing down those walls of separation and building back strong relationships. And most of all, the relationship between you and Him, He loves to tear down that wall, and He fights for it. Let's look at verse 15, and we'll see Jesus working to tear down this wall in the final section of John that we'll study together.
1: After they had eaten, Jesus said to Simon Peter,
0: Simon, son of John,
1: do you love me more than these others do? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Take care of my lambs. A second time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. third time, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter became sad because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And so he said to him, Lord, you know everything You know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. I am telling you the truth. When you were young, you used to get ready and go anywhere you wanted to. But when you were old, You will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. In saying this, Jesus was indicating the way in which Peter would die and bring glory to God. Then Jesus said to him, Follow me. Peter turned round and saw behind him that other disciple whom Jesus loved. The one who had leaned close to Jesus at the meal and had asked, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about this man? I want him to live until I come. What is that to you? Follow me. So a report spread among the followers of Jesus that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He said, if I want him to live until I come, what is that to you? He is the disciple who spoke of these things, the one who also wrote them down. And we know that what he said is true. Now there are many other things that Jesus did. If they were all written down one by one, I suppose that the whole world could not hold the books
0: that would be written. So there's the end of John. It's not the end of the study, though. (laughs) Like, don't leave. There's still still some time. Guys, it's such a powerful scene. Like, this is, to me, one of my, like, the stories in the Bible that's the most precious to me. I love it so much. It's such a powerful scene. I want to just go back and unpack the whole thing with you. So Jesus is sitting around the fire, and I think the way the actors did it—just they portrayed it, they acted it so well. It just—it shows the weight. Like they're all sitting around this fire, and it's just like—I mean, sometimes at home fellowship it can get awkward. Like I remember on Friday we were doing home fellowship, and we're sitting around the couch circle. And we're asking people, like, so what has God shown you? And, like, no one wants to be the first one to talk. And it's, like, heavy silence. And it's like, Ugh, I love the Lord, but I don't want people to know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know how that is. I, it's just awkward to be the first one to talk. In this moment, like, it's so awkward. They're sitting there. And, and Jesus looks back the first question, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And in, in your Bible, in the New King James, the, the video actually rendered it in the Good News translation. In your Bible, Jesus asks, Peter, do you love me more than these? What's he saying? There's a couple different ways to look at it. He could say, do you love me more than these people love me? Looking at the other disciples, like, Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? He could be saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love these other disciples? Or some scholars think he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's pointing to the fishing boat and the net, kind of saying, Peter, do you love me more than your old life? But, you know, I don't actually believe that's accurate. I think the first interpretation is right. I think what he's saying is, I think it's, it's, it's this callback to when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, all these other disciples will forsake you, but you know I won't. You know that I love you, Lord. You know that I am the faithful one. You know that I am the true one. Because think of how Peter responds. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Emphasis on the I. <laughs> yeah, Lord, I mean, you know that I love you. I'm Peter. I'm the faithful one. So think about it. It's this callback to that original claim, Peter's prideful claim, that he would be the one that never forsook him. And imagine that awkwardness. Like, how would you feel if you were sitting in a circle of your friends, and Jesus looked at one of your friends and was like, do you love me more than people in this circle do. And then your friend's like, well, yeah, you know that I love you the most. That's awkward. <laughs> That's a weird situation to be in. And Peter doesn't pull, or Jesus doesn't pull Peter aside for this private moment. He does it in front of the rest of the disciples. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? Now, why would Jesus ask? Is this legitimate? Like, does Jesus want to know? Is Jesus like, I'm wondering who loves me the most? Peter, is it you? Are you the one who loves me most? Are you my BFF? Jesus knows. So what Jesus is doing is he is addressing Peter's pride. He's addressing that moment where Peter said, I know all these other jerks are going to forsake you, but I won't. What happens? Peter runs away just like everyone else, and he even forsakes Jesus more than all the other disciples. He denies Jesus three times. So it's this heavy, awkward moment. Jesus is saying, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Do you really love me? It's, it's this moment where I can imagine all the other disciples are looking, and they get it. Like, Peter doesn't get it. Peter's an airhead. He's like, yeah, of course I love you. I love you more than everybody. And the other disciples, are, they know what Peter did, and they're like, oh, no. This is going to get gnarly. Jesus is going to unload on Peter. Jesus is going to get nasty with Peter. He is going to just attack him with his words. But is that what Jesus does? No, look, Jesus asks him a second time, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? He doesn't say more than these. He says just, Peter, do you love me? Now, a lot of times when someone accuses us of something, we'll defend ourselves. How many of you guys do that? Someone accuses you, your first instinct is you wanna defend yourself. Anybody? I'm there. Someone accuses me, like I wanna go straight to a defense. So, Someone asks you, like your friend or your parents or your boyfriend or girlfriend, do you love me? I feel like you don't love me. I feel like your actions lately show that you don't love me. Our first instinct is to be like, yeah, of course I love you. And we start listing what we've done. Well, yeah, of course I love you. I, I, I cleaned this thing for you, and I picked up my room, and, and I did my homework, and, and I took you on a date. Like, you know, we immediately go to the defense. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. Here's what's significant. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter doesn't have a defense because he's so broken. Peter doesn't say, well, Lord, you know I love you because I've healed people in your name, and I followed you. Uh, All he says is just like, Lord, yes, I love you. Like, you know I love you. You know I love you. Like, you know everything. That's really only his defense. He just says, Jesus, you know everything. You know that I love you. Listen, if Jesus were to ask you, do you love me? What would your response be? What evidence would it be that you would have to show for your love? Would it be, well, Lord, I go to church. I'm here on Sunday. I love you. Or or, I grew up in a Christian home, so so of course I love you. I kind of have to. Listen, Jesus isn't making like a sentimental remark. He's not like, I really just want to know that you love me, Peter. That's not what he's doing. He's asking a question that demands a decision. Because Jesus said before if you love me, you're not just gonna hang out with me. You're not just gonna tell me that you love me. You will obey me, you will keep my commandments. Guys, proof of love is in obedience. What's our proof when Jesus asks? Is it, yes, Lord? Of course I love you. Uh, Just the other day, I I prayed for 12 hours and I finished reading 70 chapters of Leviticus, and it's such an interesting book. And we're obviously faking it when we say that because Leviticus is gnarly. I finished it for my devotions. It's gnarly. Listen, God, if you're here today and you're you're making excuses, like, oh, God, of course I love you because I did this, I did this, I did this, Jesus would look at you and say, I never asked you to do any of those things. I never asked you to read Leviticus. I never asked you to pray for 10 hours. That's just religion. You can fake that. Guys, it is so easy to fake religion. It is so easy to fake your relationship with Jesus. But Jesus wants to know, are we really in a relationship? Are you following him? That's why he asks a third time, do you love me? And guys, that one must have hurt Peter so much. That must have felt like a dagger through the heart. When Jesus said the third time, Do you love me? Imagine the tension in that moment when he asks the question the third time. Listen, I feel bad for Peter because Jesus already said it twice already. Peter's probably like, Please don't ask again. Please don't ask again. Please don't ask again. He's probably thinking, Jesus, don't you believe me? Like, why are you asking again? He's probably thinking, I knew it. I I failed too much. Jesus is just going to keep asking me. Like this isn't, he doesn't want to know. He's trying to prove something. He's trying to prove that I'm a failure. He's trying to prove that I failed too much. Jesus is done with me. This is the point where he tells me to get back out on the boat and he pushes me out into the ocean and he leaves me forever. I mean, the first question seems like it could be a compliment. Like, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these guys? The second question seems like Jesus might be annoyed with Peter. But the third question is heartbreaking because it goes back to the third denial. Because when Jesus was there, or when Peter was there denying Jesus, he was sitting around a fire. And now they're sitting around a fire and it's the third question, do you love me? And the pain in that question is just, there's so much pain involved. Peter is like, this is, this is it. He's trying to prove something. I denied him three times. He's going to ask me three times, and he's, it's over for me. And the first and second time, what does Jesus say? Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Love my church. But now it's the third time, and Peter's probably thinking, you know, the other shoe is about to drop. Jesus is about to say, well, Peter, if you really love me, then why did you deny me? Why did you let me get arrested? Why did you let me die on a cross? Peter, you're the worst. But is that what Jesus says? no. What does he say? He looks at Peter and he says, Peter, feed my sheep. Peter, don't go back to your old life. Peter, follow me. You see, listen, it was painful for Peter in that moment. But what Jesus was showing him is he wanted this moment to define him, not his denials. He wanted this moment of three questions and three answers to define the rest of Peter's life, not the three denials and it's so good it's so brilliant it's so beautiful this undeserved breakfast jesus is like a brilliant chef preparing a beautiful feast of grace and mercy what is jesus's motive for even doing this it's relationship notice here that what jesus is concerned about is peter's love he's not grilling peter on a list of his failures peter why did you deny me why did you leave me why did you forsake me jesus is only concerned about the status of the relationship he only speaks of love and i think that's what some of you here need to hear. Maybe you're sinning in some way. Maybe in your life there's been some abuse of drugs. Maybe there's been some abuse of alcohol. Maybe there has been some, some decisions you've made in your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend that have led to sin, and you feel trapped in that. Maybe for you it's pornography. Maybe for you it's partying with the wrong crowd, and every time you're with them, even though you have fun, you get sucked into a world of rebellion and sin. Maybe for you it's you're just so Of your parents and you just want to get out of their house and graduate and just leave and be on your own where you can do what you want. And there's the spirit of rebellion where you don't want to listen to the Lord and you don't want to follow him. Listen. If that's you here today, Jesus is not looking for a long, awkward conversation. I know how much some of you guys hate that, those long, awkward conversations where, where where he wants to drag everything out. He's not looking to grill you and make you feel bad and bring up all your sins and put them in front of you. Do you ever get a fight with someone, and maybe your parents or maybe a friend, and what they want to do is they just want to sit there and drag out all of your dirt. They want to say, let's talk about all the stuff that you've done that's wrong. Let's Let's talk about it. We need to talk about it. Listen. Jesus is more concerned with restoring you to a right relationship with him. If you feel distant, if you feel separated, and you look at Jesus, and you're like, man, he must hate me. No, he looks at you, and he just says, listen, I just have one question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because I love you. Charles Stanley says, when we stray from his presence, he longs for us to come back like a shepherd wants the sheep to come back home. You might be here and you might think, well, I don't, sp- I don't hear the Lord speak anymore. I don't hear his voice. He doesn't speak to me. Listen, this is just, this is really basic, but it's really good to think about. If you're a sheep and you have a shepherd, if you're next to him, can you hear his voice? Yeah. If you wander far away, isn't it harder to hear his voice? It's really basic, but really true. And listen, if you're here today and you can't hear the Lord's voice, it's not because he left you, it's because you wandered away. Now here is amazing. Here's what's amazing about Jesus. Jesus is amazing because he doesn't just say, like, I know a lot of people, I even know pastors. I know some pastors. Sometimes I talk to other youth pastors and we'll bring up a a kid in their youth group who's struggling and who's left. And they're just like, yeah, if that's what they want to do, like, they can do it. Like, forget them. Like, if they get their head screwed on straight and they start following Jesus, then they can come back to youth group. But for now, just like, I don't care. Like, they're in sin. Like, just I, I've talked to people sometimes who have that heart. I personally don't agree with it. Because I look at Jesus' heart and and what Jesus does is as the good shepherd, he doesn't say, oh, my sheep wandered off? (laughs) Forget that sheep. I've got 99 other sheep. No, the Bible says that he is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. In this moment, you need to know that if you're here today and if you are dealing with lost sheep syndrome, if you've wandered away from the Lord, through even this message, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you saying, I am running after you. I am the good shepherd. Who is chasing you down because I love you and I want to restore you to a right relationship. In this moment, Peter has found forgiveness. Jesus has invited him once again to follow. What does he say? He says, Feed my sheep. It's a beautiful thing that the good shepherd is inviting Peter into the shepherding business because Peter was the ultimate failure and he's being given the ultimate privilege. If you don't understand the significance of this, what, Peter is, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, I want you to pastor my church. I want you to be the leader. I want you to be the one to lead the church after I go back to heaven. I want you to be the leader. I want you to feed my sheep. Peter had given up. I remember when I was on the basketball team at Calvary, eighth grade, yeah, you better laugh, because it was pretty pathetic. I was on the basketball team, and I was so bad that, like, literally, I touched the ball twice the entire season, eighth grade basketball, twice the entire season, shot once, missed, because I, and I and I also aimed for the other team's basket, so just, just terrible, and I, at, had gotten to the point where I had failed so much that I just completely gave up. And I showed up to my basketball games and I just went straight to the bench, sat down and I got a book out and I just read a book. I was that weird kid who just like, it's like, why is he even on the basketball team? My parents made me, I hate sports. I was that guy. That's where Peter is. He's given up. He's like, I am just going to go and fish. And if I'm lucky, I might even catch one fish, but I'm such a failure that I'm probably just going to die out on this boat. Peter says, get off the bench. Peter, I need you in this game. Phillips Brooks says, you must learn, you must let God teach you that the only way to get rid of your past is to make the future out of it. God will waste nothing. Peter goes from being a fisherman to a fisher of men, back to a fisherman, and then to a shepherd. See, Jesus used all of his failures and past experiences to grow him into who he is now. Listen, if you're here today and you have failures that you hate thinking about and you hate acknowledging, God can use everything the enemy ever meant for evil in your life for good. That's where Peter is. He takes it to heart. Peter wrote this beautiful verse later on in his life in his old age. He wrote this verse in 1 Peter that goes, shepherd the flock that is among you. You can see he got that heart of a shepherd from Jesus. Jesus. He held on to it. That's actually the verse that convinced me in Brooklyn to stay here. We wanted to move. When we were offered the position uh, to be junior high, when I was offered to be the junior high pastor here, I was planning on moving to Maine. And ironically, I was gonna work on a fishing boat. Can you imagine me on a fishing boat? I would have died, like, in two weeks. So was the Lord. Um, but we were looking at the Bible, and we were praying, and we read in First Peter, shepherd the flock that is among you. And we looked around at you guys, so yeah, some of you guys who are seniors. You guys were uh, only in seventh grade at the time. And we, were, we just felt like you know, this is our flock. Like, this is the, these are the kids that we've been with since they were in elementary school. We've been counselors in junior high. Like, this is where God wants us. I love the heart of the shepherd that Peter gets, and it's a heart that I try to hold on to today. Guys, Jesus is so merciful, giving responsibility to someone who does not deserve it, I mean, can't you just see a scene where if Jesus was more human, if Jesus had the flesh like us, he would have concluded that Peter was not fit to lead? Uh, I remember for me, when I was a kid, I-, I went on the Star of India. Many of you guys know the story, uh, but I went on the Star of India. It's this boat out in San Diego, and we did this like role play thing where we pretended to be like pilot- pirates or sailors or something. It was a field trip. I was in junior high, and there was a captain. It was this old lady with a squinty eye, and she was like, I'm the captain, and she looked at me, and I'm this, you know, seventh grade kid, and she's like, I see potential in you lad. And she gave me this hammer and she's like, this is the hammer of the captain or I don't know what it was, but she's, she gave me this list of responsibilities, but I was such an airhead that I was just so stoked on the hammer that I totally didn't pay attention to the responsibilities she gave me. So the next day passed, I didn't do anything she told me to do. I completely didn't even know. And I was too afraid to ask. So at the end of the day, she calls me in front of my entire class and she has me walk up the steps and she turns me around. She says, this boy is a failure. I gave him the hammer and he dropped the ball And now the whole ship is going to hell in a handbasket. And she took the hammer from me. And she said, you don't get the hammer no more. And then she gave it to my worst enemy, this guy named Michael, who's a good friend now. But back then, he was my worst enemy for some reason because junior high is a weird time where you have enemies. And then I'm standing in front of my entire class, and a single tear falls down my cheek. And I'm looking at everyone, including the girl I had a crush on at the time. Everyone's just like, what a joke. And as I'm walking down the steps, a seagull flies over me, poops on my head. Literally, I felt like such a failure. That's where Peter is. He just, in this moment, such a failure. And I can just see Peter getting just trashed on by Jesus. Can't you just see Jesus saying, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know I do. And, And Jesus is like, yeah, Peter, that's great, but your love was not enough. John, you're the new leader. Peter, church janitor forever. That's what you get. That's where Peter could have been. But listen, God is the God of second chances, the God of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, sixth chances. He gives the job to Peter. Chuck Swindoll, a very happy man, (laughs) says, when God is involved, anything can happen. Be open. Stay that way. God has a beautiful way of bringing good vibrations out of broken cords. That reminds me of a story of um, Brooklyn's old pastor, Ken Graves who's a beautiful man as well. Look at that guy. He's just always like, hey, hey, check me out. That's actually what he sounds like. This is, this is what his voice sounds like. I'm going to do a perfect, perfect impression. And if you don't believe me, look up Ken Graves on YouTube and you'll see. The utter contempt that I had for the man who suffered under the fury of the wrath of God. Yeah. That's Ken Graves. One time I was out with Ken Graves. No joke. We're in and out. The dude gets four double-doubles, and four animal-style fries. And his daughter's with him, so I'm like, so Ken, Pastor Ken, is that like, like two burgers for you and two burgers for your daughter, or like three for you and like one for your daughter? And he goes, no, all for me. It's all fuel. That's what he said. He says, I, bur- I put it in, and I burn it off. And I was just like, oh my gosh, Ken. So here's another Ken story. One time, Ken was at his church in Maine, where Brooklyn's from, and he's leading worship. And he is playing the guitar furiously. He's a man, he just strums so hard. He's like one of those guys who's just like, duh, 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 duh. like just, he's one of those guys. And he's just strumming so hard that one of the strings breaks. Now, normally when you're a worship leader and your string breaks, what you do is you try to go on without it. You know what I mean? You try to fake it, and you, you try to just keep playing with like the chords, or the strings that you have left. Not Ken, Ken, he's like playing, strings break. And he goes, (laughs) just stops worship in the middle of the song. And he points out to the people in the crowd. And he goes, do any of you have a knife? And like every man in the church holds up this giant knife. Their church is gnarly. If you want to be gnarly, go move to Maine and go to Ken Graves Church. And then he goes, do any of you have a clean knife? And like half the guys put their knives down. (laughs) So then he grabs the knife, and he, like in the middle of his worship set, does the hard work of fixing and repairing his string, and then he goes back to being worship, uh, leading worship. Why do I tell you this story? Listen, listen, there's a connection. A lot of times in your life, you might feel like if you're serving God, you're, you know, think of you know, Ken Graves, just imagine him like God, and, and, and you're part of the family of God, the guitar, you're one of the strings, and, and God is using you, but then you break, you sin, you make a mistake, and a lot of times we feel like, well, now God can't go on without like, God's just going to have to go on without me. Like, I'm worthless. Like, just keep playing. Use the other strings. I'm a failure. Just tear me off of the guitar. Throw me in the trash because I've sinned. Listen, God will stop everything to work on fixing you. Because he doesn't want to go on without you. He loves you. He doesn't want to go on with his mission without you. He will drop everything everything to come and rescue and repair you and restore you isn't that wonderful guys I love this story listen some of you guys here may be holding back on following Jesus right now you might have a million excuses you might think my sin is too great my problems are too large my doubts are too deep my fears are too full listen you're missing out Alan Redpath says, there's some task which the God of all the universe, the great creator, your redeemer in Jesus Christ, has for you to do, and which will remain undone and incomplete until by faith and obedience you step into the will of God. Listen, don't let the enemy tell you you can't follow. This story is beautiful. It shows that God is faithful to complete the work he began. This story reveals the heart of Yahweh. Jesus and Yahweh, God the Father and God the Son, are dedicated to their Covenant promises. What does that mean? It's a story that perfectly represents God's covenant faithfulness. What's a covenant? It's God's partnership with humans. Since the beginning, God doesn't just make humans and say, now just live in my world and then die. No, He says, I want to partner with you to do great things. And with Adam, He made a covenant take care of the garden. With Noah, He made a covenant take care of the new world. Uh, with Abraham, He made a covenant I'm going to use your family to bless many nations. With David, He made a covenant through your family will come the Messiah and the King. All of those people failed. All of those people dropped their end of the covenant. Peter, God makes a covenant with him. Jesus says, join me, be my disciple, work with me. I have jobs for you to do. Peter fails, and yet Jesus picks him back up. That is God's covenant faithfulness. God continues to partner with humans he knows will fail. He compensates for their failure and is able to move the story forward in spite of themselves. This story is like a snapshot of the heart of Yahweh, and I love it so much. Listen, Jack Hiles, another very happy man, says, failing is not a disgrace unless you make it the last chapter of your book. Think about that. Failure doesn't have to be the end for you. Jesus says, let's work together. And Peter is so happy to receive that grace, even though he knows following Jesus will cost him his life. In verse 18, we see it. And it's so sad. He says, Peter... When you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. He's not talking about Peter getting old and having to get dressed to go into like a senior citizens, like old folk home. They didn't have that back then. No, he's predicting the way Peter's gonna die. One day they're gonna put prison robes on him. He's gonna be an old man who served Jesus all this his life faithfully. What does he get in return? Crucified on a cross upside down. Imagine the agony, Peter went through more pain on the cross than Jesus did. Think of that. Jesus is looking at Peter, and he's saying, you are going to suffer. Now, this is what's so beautiful. This shows, this shows that Jesus trusts Peter. Because think about it. Before Jesus rose from the dead, Peter feared death. I told you last week the Jews didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. So Peter fears dying, and so even though he's prideful and says, I will never deny you, he runs and he hides and he denies, but now things are different because Peter has seen the resurrection. He's seen Jesus's full power, and so now he has no fear. He has total commitment, and Jesus gets this, and so that's why he says, Peter, feed my sheep even though it's going to cost you your life. It's like Watchman Nee said, Christ is, is the son of God who died for the redemption of sinners and resurrected after three days. This is the greatest truth in the universe. I die because of my belief in Christ. Peter's description of death is not punishment. It's not Jesus saying, because you denied me, now you're going to get crucified upside down, Peter. No, it's a privilege. And we don't think of it that way in our modern world where we want everything to be comfortable and cozy Christianity. But Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain because he knows that we have a bulletproof soul. Nothing can kill our soul, only our body. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi says, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. It's true. The last quote for today is Elizabeth Elliot. Now, if you guys don't know, how many of you guys know the story of Elizabeth Elliot? Anyone here? Such a rad story. So Elizabeth's husband, Jim Elliot, and his friends They were young guys, I think in their 20s or early 30s. And they decided they were gonna go to this jungle to witness to this tribe that had never heard about Jesus. And they were so bold. These guys were so full of courage to witness for Jesus. And they knew that it was gonna be risky. They knew that they might die. You know, that's exactly what happened. They landed their plane and within minutes, they were all dead. They show up on the island and these villagers come out and they're like, who the heck are these white men on our beach? Like, what's going on? And they grabbed spears and they threw them at them and they, they speared them to death. Elizabeth Elliot and her, the wives of the men who died, instead of spending the rest of their life just angry at these villagers who did this to their husbands, what they did is they got in a plane. They flew to the place where their husbands died. And they actually started a church there. They witnessed to the people who had killed their husbands. They brought them to the Lord. And Jesus has done a beautiful, amazing, restorative work down in that jungle. It's, that's, that's the gospel. Like forgiving the person who kills your husband and then starting a church there. It's incredible. There's what Elizabeth Elliot says. We want to avoid suffering, death, sin, ashes, But we live in a world crushed and broken and torn, a world God himself visited to redeem. We receive his poured out life and begin, and and being allowed the high privilege of suffering with him may then pour ourselves out for others. Guys, in conclusion, we finished John, but listen, the, the story of the gospel is still being written because God's not finished with us. You guys don't know, but you're the next chapter in the story the mission is a world full of lost sheep who need the shepherd what's the whole point of the series we we called this series a year ago follow follow don't just be a christian who comes to church be a follower Some of you have been lied to by the enemy. The enemy says you can't follow God. You're not good enough. He lists your sins in front of you, and you go, oh, yeah, that checks out. Like, I've done a lot of bad things. I can't follow Jesus. Jesus tears up that list, and he says to you, forget that noise. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? And you might say, but, Lord, I've messed up. And Jesus, that's not what I asked. Do you love me? I go, Lord, I've 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 ruined my chance, and the Lord says, "No, do you love me?" Because listen, I love you, but Lord. I'm down on the ground. I've said, "Get up, get up, keep walking. We're not done. I have so much for you to do. Come, follow me, Jesus." As we close the book of John, I pray for these students here who are coming from so many different situations, so many different struggles, doubts, fears, and sins, help them, God, to know if they're down right now and the enemy's kicking them, and they feel like Peter, trapped. They feel like that poor mouse that I butchered. They feel trapped. Jesus, help them to know there's a way out, not just to go to heaven one day, but to live out the kingdom of heaven right now, to have a life that's full of excitement and danger, of risk, but with reward that's greater than anything ever. The reward of serving you, the reward of laying down our life for you, the reward of suffering for you, the reward of your eternal kingdom versus everything this world has to offer that won't last and is just shadows. Jesus, help us to follow you. I pray that you'd help them to get up God, help them to be filled with your spirit right now. Holy Spirit, come into them, into their hearts, and fill their souls. Help them to feel your love, not your rejection. Help them to feel your power, not their own weakness. Help them to feel your forgiveness, not their own shame. Help them to realize that, like Peter, you are not finished with them. You have so much for them to do right now. Help them even today with their families and friends to do it in your name. Help them to follow you today. We love you, Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen.